0: Everybody, your go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes 5, I'm going to pick up uh, where we left off a few weeks ago, Ecclesiastes 5, and we want to read verses 8 to 20, Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 20, if you will stand with me out a reverence for, for God's holy word. Solomon writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and the righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is is watched by a higher, and and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land, in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his his, his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. He came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. What gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, and much vexation, sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. Few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's go, to Lord, in prayer. Father, we ask as always you open our heart and our mind uh, that we would receive and understand your word, our eyes that we'd see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed, our mouth that we'd speak the truth and the hope we have in Christ hands and feet that we will go in obedience. May we be transformed by the power of the gospel for the glory of Christ and the good of your kingdom. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. Seated. By his early 30s, Andrew uh, Carnegie became one of the wealthiest men in the world. Uh, he is the forerunner of what we now call U.S. Steel, and he uh, quickly realized that his greed was not good for his soul. He wrote, quote, Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of, of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, should I be careful to choose the life with which will be the, will be the most elevating in character? To continue much longer, overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I, he says, will resign business at 35. But during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. Well, if you know anything about Andrew Carnegie... He did not retire at age 35. One of his biographers, Joseph Frazier, said regarding this quote, neither Rockefeller nor Ford nor Morgan could have written this note, nor would they have understood the man who did. But he, of course, didn't retire at 35. One biographer puts it this way, or rather, not a biography, but one of his workers said, quote, although Carnegie built 2,059 libraries, a steelworker, speaking for many, told an interviewer, quote, "We didn't want to build. We didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages." At that time, steelworkers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes. Every two weeks, they toiled in inhuman 24-hour shifts, and then they got their sole day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. Well, Carnegie at least hit the nail on the head, and he knew something had to change for the good of his own soul and for the good for his workers. The problem is, like so many, it is easier to say uh, what the cure could be. It's another thing to take the cure And to walk away since its inception, greed has been a one of the primary gods, idols of our great nation. So much so that whenever one pulls out a a bill of some kind and you see written on our coinage and God we trust, we may wonder if it is speaking of the true God of the universe or the God in which the inscription is found in. seems like in America, the only God we do trust is that of the almighty dollar and isn't it odd that the richest nation in the world is also the most anxious, the most depressed, and the most indebted of all the nations? Maybe the solution to man's ill was not, in fact, the eradication of poverty after all. Greed, we have discovered in the history of America, is a poor savior. Notice what the critic does here. He's he's done this in the past, right? In chapter two, he talked about greed, but here he provides a a full take on the issue of greed. He says a couple things about the issue of greed. The first thing he says about greed is that greed is a blood-sucking leech. Uh, uh, They don't teach you to to come up with fancy points like that in cemetery, but but there you go. A good summary is that greed is a blood-sucking leech. The thesis is laid out there for us in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Pretty straightforward. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And this is the great lie of the American dream. If you have enough, it'll be enough. In his book on Psalm 23, Traveling Light, Max Lucado introduces it this way, quote, Come with me to the most populated prison in the world. The facility has more inmates than bunks, more prisoners than plates, more residents than resources. Come with me to the world's most oppressive prison. Just ask the inmates and they will tell you. They are overworked and underfed. Their walls are bare and their bunks are hard. No prison is so populated, no prison so oppressive, and what's more, no prison is so permanent. They are never released. There is no escape. And most inmates never leave. They serve a life sentence in this overcrowded, uh, under-provisioned facility. The name of the prison, he writes, you'll see it over the entrance. Rainbowed over the gate are four cast-iron letters that spell out its name, W-A-N-T. It's the prison of want. You've seen our prisoners. They are in want. They want something. They want something bigger, nicer, faster, thinner. They want. They don't want much, mind you, Lucato writes. They just want one thing. One new job. One new car. One new house. One new spouse. They don't want much. They just want one. And when they have one, they will be happy. And they are right. They will be happy. When they have one, they will leave the prison. But then it happens. The new car smell passes. The new job gets owed. The neighbors buy a larger television set. The new spouse has bad habits. The sizzle fizzles. And before you know it, another ex-con breaks parole and returns to jail. I love that imagery of greed as a prison. It's precisely what the Bible does in describing the, our, our lust of the flesh and the lust of the world as, as prisons as slavery and as starvation. Now, the defense of that thesis is laid out there in verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? That is to say, the more you have, the more you suddenly need. Ever wonder, for example, how your grandparents survived on such uh, meager means? I mean, think about it. Chances are your grandparents survived on a single income. A single income. Can I tell you how your grandparents survived? First of all, there is no cable bills, no streaming services, no, no cell phone plan, no subscription plans to countless products. You know, oh, it's only $5 a month. That's the cost of a cup of coffee. Oh, that's not so bad. Here, 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 this is just $10 a month. You make that easily in an hour. That reminds me, what they also didn't have was $5 cups of coffee. They didn't have any of that. They didn't eat out every day. One car, one vacation, no neighbors, and no Amazon. It really is amazing when you think about it. You strip all of that stuff away. Could you live off of that? Of course. Take away the large mortgage. Take away the large interest loans. Take away the student loans. Take away all of that sort of stuff. And yet somehow they were as if not more happy than many of us are with far more. I remember where I pastored before, there was a farmer who uh, was a little boy during the Great Depression. I don't remember the full story, but I remember asking him sort of what it was like to, to go through that dark period of our nation's history. And his answer just stuck with me. He said, well, we knew we were poor growing up. We just didn't know really uh, to, to compare us, we didn't really know that we were poor. We knew we were poor, but we didn't know any better. In fact, when, when all of that stuff hit, look, it didn't affect us. Dad didn't have stock in, in New York. We, we weren't going to the city to get stuff. Our jobs weren't dependent on that. No, we really didn't notice a whole lot. Food came from the soil. Our home came from the woods. And our love came from one another and family. Yes, we understood times were hard for America, but didn't affect us a whole lot. Shortly after I became pastor in Breckinridge County, a uh, ice storm hit. I've told you about it before, our son was three months old, something like that, and really scary time for, for my wife and I. And uh, new, we started that new parents smell, right? And then the local crisis hits, kind of a scary time. I remember there was one family, they're farmers, and uh, I asked, you know, how did you manage through the last two or three weeks of no power and all the ice and all this? And he's like, "Yeah, I still worked on the farm. We had a generator, and uh, uh, I have my own propane thing, and uh, we fed the cows. We ate what we had canned. We survived just fine. There's something freeing about that. Something freeing indeed. Now we discover that increased wealth may mean for us a better neighborhood, doesn't it? makes you a few dollars, maybe you can get that little nicer house in that neighborhood, a little safer house, a little better location and, and better property values and long-term investments. Yeah, that's good. The problem is now you're the new member of the neighborhood and you discover you're now the poorest member of this neighborhood. The guy next to you has, has more than you do. and We've got to keep up with that. And that's just simply not enough. I believe that keeping up with the Joneses is, in fact, the America's favorite pastime and has been for generations. When one of my favorite old songs by DC Talk, they take on this very issue in the song called Things of This World. They write, 70 years is all we got. To accumulate goods seems to mean a lot. For the first 20 years, you're off the school, learning principles and learning the tools. To make a lots of money, the ultimate goal gain the whole world and you lose your soul. Humanism is on a roll. 20 gets the knowledge, 30 years to apply, and just 20 years left for asking why. I didn't realize what it was all about. Was there any use in this rigorous routes? The solution to this issue is actually laid out for us early on there in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. If greed feeds an endless cycle of more upon more, the answer to greed is not more, it is contentment. The man who works hard and returns home to spend the evening with his family is happier than the wealthy fat cat who lacks such blessings. So you tell me then who is wealthier. The poor man whose family adores him, respects him and will bury him or the man with, a, with, a, with staff and investments and at his funeral, everyone wants to know what they will get from him now that he is dead. Think about it. Who was truly richer in the Christmas carol? Ebenezer Scrooge before he was haunted by those ghosts or Bob Cratchit who couldn't afford a half decent turkey for his family. So not only is greed a blood-sucking leech, greed, the critic tells us, cannot cure the soul. That's in verses 13 to 17. Several years ago, I watched the what was then called the WB. Now I think it's the CW. Um, but nevertheless, you don't care about any of that, nor will it change your life. But it was WB back then. They had a show called Smallville. Smallville is the hometown of Superman. For those of you who don't know, Superman is not a real person nor is Smallville. Okay? Just to... But preacher, anyways, um, but, but so it's all about how uh, Clark Kent is growing up as a teenager, discovering his powers and all that sort of stuff. There's one episode that really stuck out to me. Uh, the Kents, uh, Clark Kent and his, his adoptive parents, they, they befriend this little boy, and they bring him into to, to their home, and they discover he's got cancer, and he's dying of cancer. And he's laying on his deathbed, and, and Clark says, look, if we could just cure the cancer, Surely we should just cure the cancer. We can just cure the cancer. Someone has to have the cure. After all, he's Superman. He, he, he can, he can, he can uh, uh, leap tall buildings in a single bound. Right? He, 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 can, he is faster than the speed in bullets. Surely he can save this little boy dying of cancer. And so he runs all over the world. He, he, he goes to see what the latest technology says and what the best doctors have to say. He, he brings them in and all this sort of stuff. And by the end of it, the boy dies of his cancer. And what Clark Kent, the future Superman, has to learn is, is that not even Superman can cure death. Not even Superman can do that. Is greed really any difference? If if a hero can't cure death, then nothing we try will ever cure our greed. I can prove it to you. Remember the Beatles? Early on in their career, they wrote a song called Money, That's What I want. The best things in life are free, but you can keep them for the birds and the bees. Now give me money. That's what I want. Your loving gives me a thrill, but your loving don't pay my bills. Now give me money. That's what I want. Hey, it's your generation. Don't judge me. I'm looking at your generation, folks. Kind of just had this footnote. I, mean, I still got more to do here with the Beatles. But at our wedding, this is free. It, has nothing, it will not bless your soul. At our wedding, we played All My Life as an instrumental coming in. And we had members of our church, the youth minister at the time, they were thrilled that we played the Beatles. I'm like, Beatles? That's not a Beatles song. That's a Johnny Cash song. So one night after church, we played the Cash version, they played the Beatles version, and we agreed to disagree. After that night, <laughs> I'll stick with Johnny and the boys. They go, oh, money don't get everything. It's true. What it don't get, I can't use. Now give me money. That's what I want. Act two, right? Cut to act two years later. What is the song they wrote? Can't buy me love by the Beatles. I'll buy you diamonds ring, my friends, if it makes you feel all right. I'll get you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Because I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. I'll give you all I got to give if you say you love me too. I may not have a lot to give, but what I've got I'll give to you. I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. That's the history of humanity, isn't it? Early on when we were young and dumb, we think if only I had just that little bit more, I can break out of the prison of wants. Only to discover the problem isn't what I lack in material things but something that transcendent. The critic laments among a pattern, this pattern among the rich and poor alike in verses 13 and 14, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Those riches were lost in a bad venture and his father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. You see, instead of enjoying the blessings of God, this metaphorical man has had a tendency to exploit, to risk, and to gamble their way into harm. Have you ever studied the amount of debt the average American is in right now? According to one study, the average American is in debt by $52,000 a year. That includes mortgage loans, home equity, lines of credit, auto loans, credit cards, student loan debt, and other debt like personal loans. In fact, it is so severe there are financial experts who are multi-millionaires, like my boy Dave Ramsey, who makes a living telling you not to be in debt. And, and that is his job. 90% of it is stop getting in debt. That's his job. I just did his job for him right there. That's it. And can I give you this, the Dave Ramsey secret for getting out of debt? Stop getting in debt. To begin with, step one. Step two Pay off the debts you have. Step three, don't get in this situation again. That's it. There's no secret sauce to it. But we Americans are in debt to our eyeballs, and we can't seem to get out. The average American is drowning in debt. Most are living paycheck to paycheck, not because they are not getting paid enough at the job to live a comfortable life, but because we are constantly chasing more and more. Though rich, we are very poor. Of course, this is bigger than investments in this text. Those are the destructive power of adultery and pride and envy and hatred, discontentment and greed and lust. They harm everyone in our orbit. And that's the point here. Here you have a man who's driven by greed and he ends up affecting his family. He has nothing to give his son. We do that with all the passions of our heart. We think we have everything. We're gaining more, a little bit more. And what do we end up doing is destroying the people we claim to love. To go back to DC Talk song, The End of the World, they write, quote, Our mind transform a want to a need. A simple process that we call greed. You say, you like to have money? Well, I do too. The problem starts when the money has you working overtime to keep up with the pace. A lifestyle that you want to embrace, but it's two steps where your needs are met. You're keeping up with the Jones, but you're all in debt, which leads to stress not meeting the bills or you're sporting a Benz with all the thrills. The domino effects got your life in check. A temporary stitch in your living wreck. And notice what he goes on in verse 15 to 17 is that with all this wealth and investment of technology, death still comes for us all. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. When an infant is born and is laid in the arms of his or her mother, he is by far richer than the man with great investments and a large home, and he still dies alone in in his private mansion. And yet this infant has no job, has no investments, has no plans, has nothing. If they're in his mother's arms, he has enough. You've heard the old phrase, I'm sure. If not, you've heard it now. You can't, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Right? In fact, in my in-law's house, we were dating, they had a postcard. It was literally a U-Haul behind a hearse with a caption, who said you can't take it with you? <laughs> can I answer that question for you? The guy in the hearse is saying that, right? I mean, I don't know where the hearse is going, but... That stuff ain't getting to heaven, right? I mean, the guy ain't ain't, ain't that rich. But we used to joke about that all, all the time. But what a sad ending to one's biography here, to gain the whole world and still forfeit your soul. And think about that. Despite access to the best doctors, everything, we still die. This is what struck me with the death of Steve Jobs several years ago. He died of pancreatic cancer. You know how many people are cured of pancreatic cancer in this country? It's a very serious cancer, particularly for men, right? Um, But a lot of people survive pancreatic cancer. Here is one, if not the richest man in the world at the time. And yet, like Clark Kent had to learn, it wasn't enough to survive death. Was it the DC Talk said in that song, things of this world are passing away. Here tomorrow, but they're sure not here to stay. Things of this world are passing away, so lay your treasures above. Start to live for him today. leads to the third point that we have here. Greed is no replacement for God's favor. We see that in verses 18 to 20. If greed takes and never gives, whether physically in death or spiritually in the form of anxiety, worry, stress, and whatnot, And what is the answer to greed? Well, the Bible is very clear that the answer is contentment. It's laid out there for us there, starting in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Benjamin Franklin, I believe this is in his uh, almanac book, his famous, I I can't get it in my head, uh, his almanac one. Uh, But he had the quote uh, which is quite good. It says, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. And we have that laid out here. In fact, that that refrain there is one that we've seen over and over again, right? Let me give you a few examples. Chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also assaults from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat and who can have enjoyment. Chapter three, verse 13, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. That is God's gift to man. Chapter five, verse 18, that that we just see. Behold, uh, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Moving forward in chapter eight, verse 15, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him, in his toil, through the days of his life that God has given him son. Chapter nine, verse seven, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already proved what you do. I'm sensing a pattern here. The answer that the critic says here is that yes, there's a lot of vanity we spend our lives in, but in that vanity distracts us from what it, the gift that God has already given us to eat and drink and be merry for God has blessed us with much. Notice here he says in verse 18 that God has given him. God has given him, which means contentment is a spiritual gift, not a physical entitlement. It's a big difference. We believe through greed or through lust or through uh, whatever it might be, that if I had a little more, if I had this other thing, if I tried this, then I will be content. In other words, contentment is something for sale. If I had this relationship, if I had this other career, if I finish school, if I travel over here, if, if, if I get more kids, if I have a larger family, if I do this or that, that, that then contentment because something I earn. Thus so you see the religious nature of this very issue. It's why we call it idolatry. It's false worship. But the Bible tells us that no, contentment isn't something we earn. Isn't something we're given by by nature of what we purchase? It is a gift that comes exclusively from God. Contentment is something we must receive. The story goes of a pastor who tells the story of a man who came to his office after a great financial catastrophe. He says, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I've lost everything. Pastor says, I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't know you lost your character. No, you don't understand, Pastor. I, I didn't lose my character. I've lost everything. Pastor, I, I'm so sorry to hear that. I didn't realize you lost your faith. No, no, Pastor, I didn't lose my faith. I, but, but I've lost everything. This financial disaster, I've lost everything. I've got nothing now. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that. You can't believe you lost your salvation. Well, Pastor, I didn't lose my salvation. Well, it sounds to me, he said. You've not lost anything of great importance. It isn't until we discover that contentment comes from God and not wealth or circumstances will we ever possess contentment. One of the things I have a habit of doing, particularly here at the office, I have a habit of losing my keys. You ever do that? Can I give you a hint? Can I tell you where your keys are? They're not hanging up where you put them in the house. They're not sitting on your desk. They're not in a drawer. Can I tell you where they are? If you're looking for your keys right now, I'll tell you where they are right now. I'm going to solve all your problems right here. They are in your pocket. You know I'm right. They are in your pocket. You can, you can search high and low for those keys. You're going to find them in your pocket. i I tell you a little secret here? What you'll discover in that moment is the very thing you were looking for you already had on you. If only you reached for it. So too, contentment is not something we build up to. It isn't something we earn. It isn't something we fight for. It is a gift we simply received. We already have it in Christ. If only we'd find it, that it's right there. What is it that Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.6? Godliness with contentment is great gain what a wonderful ending to this chapter, isn't it? There in verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's a great ending to a chapter, isn't it? Toil, sweat, tears, pain, heartache, stress, sorrow. That's the story of every man and woman. You will not escape that. But to him who is content in Christ and finds the joy of his heart in his maker, he remembers none of it, Because his eyes are focused on the blessings he has on God. Chances are right now, right now, we are consumed emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually with anxiety. We are arrested with worry and, and resentment and bitterness and envy. Can I tell you why? Because we don't believe verse 20 is true. If our joys is on the blessing of God and our contentment is in the glory of God, if our peace and love and and everything is centered in the finished work of Christ, our eyes is less on the things we think we lack, but on the very thing we know we have. And what we have is enough. What a great verse that is. He will not much remember the days of his life. God keeps them occupied with joy in his heart. That's good stuff, isn't it? How many of you, whenever your kids were toddlers, that was the skill to everything, wasn't it? Maybe their their sleeping schedule was off a little bit. You knew the second you get in this car, they're going to sleep now and not sleep tonight. So what do you do? You keep their mind focused on something they care about, a toy or something like that. Whenever uh, the kids were super little, Uh, One was an infant and couldn't care less about anything other than eating and sleeping and diaper duties. But but the other one was was more interactive. I remember we were driving home late at night. We didn't want to go to sleep yet, right? Because then it would be a struggle to get them back to sleep when we got home. I remember saying, hey, guys, ever heard of uh, the hillbilly beast? No, Dad, what's the hillbilly? It's a monster. It's right outside your window. Help me find him as we go down the road. Hillbilly beast, are you there? I don't see him, Dad. Keep looking. He's got to be out there. Billy Beast, are you there? And they didn't fall asleep. Isn't that what God does? Keeping us focused on the joy that we have so we would not be distracted by the things we think we lack. In 1968, a movie was released called Oliver Twist, based off, of course, the Dickens novel. It's a musical. I've never seen it. I've seen this scene. And it's just really striking to me. Can can I read you the lyrics? We've done a lot of songs today. Is it it surprising that a lot of our songs are about money? No. It's the American dream. In a song in Oliver Twist called You've Got to Pick a Pocket or Two, it says, quote, In this life, one thing counts. In the bank, large amounts. I'm afraid these things, these don't grow on tree. You've got to pick a pocket or two. Take a tip from Bill Sykes. He can whip what he likes. I recall he started small. He had to pick a pocket or two. When I see someone rich, both my thumbs start to itch. I want to find some peace of mind. We got to pick a pocket or two. Now, the genesis of that song is when Oliver discovers a little box full of gold watches and other items of wealth. And it's there, this new mentor of Oliver, sings him this song. you got to pick a pocket or two. And at the end of the little musical thing, and they're dancing and they're kind of over the top. I don't do a lot of musicals. It's, it's they all, all these little kids and, and the old man, they pull out all their watches and everything else they had stolen from, from the rich. And you know what's striking about that scene? They're all still poor. They've got access to all this wealth. All this gold jewelry and watches and everything else. But they can't do anything with it. They're still hungry. They're still dirty. They're still homeless. They have all of this. And yet the very thing they need, they still lack. You can pick a pocket or two. But it won't meet what it is you actually need. This is why Christ will tell us to lay your treasures up in heaven where moth cannot destroy and thieves cannot steal. But you see, it isn't much just money that Christ is speaking of in that text. It's our very soul. So lay down your treasures and the greed that feeds them and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Because remember, you were purchased for a price. Don't surrender to the lie of greed. Because you've been set free by the Redeemer. Let's pray.